CD7. King Tepikaimon the 27th opened his eyes. It's bloody dark in here, he thought, and he realised that he could hear his own heart beating, but muffled and some way off. And then he remembered. He was alive. He was alive again. And this time he was in bits. Somehow he'd assumed that you got assembled again once you got to the netherworld, like one of Gringer's kits. Get a grip on yourself, man, he thought. It's up to you to pull yourself together. Right, he thought. There were at least six jars, so my eyes are in one of them. Getting the lid off would be favourite, so we can see what we're at. That's going to involve arms and legs and fingers. Hmm, this is going to be really tricky. He reached out, tentatively, with stiff joints, and located something heavy. It felt as though it might give, so he moved his other arm into position with a great deal of awkwardness and pushed. There was a distant thump and a definite feeling of openness above him. He sat up, creaking all the way. The sides of the ceremonial casket still hemmed him in, but to his surprise he found that one slow arm movement brushed them out of the way like paper. Must be all the pickle and stuffing, he thought. Gives you a bit of weight. He felt his way to the edge of the slab, lowered his heavy legs to the ground, and after a pause out of habit to wheeze a bit, took the first tottering lurch of the newly undead. It is astonishingly difficult to walk with legs full of straw when the brain doing the directing is in a pot ten feet away, but he made it as far as the wall and felt his way along it until a crash indicated that he'd reached the shelf of jars. He fumbled the lids of the first one and dipped his hand gently inside. It must be brains, he thought manically, because Semolina doesn't squidge like that. I've collected my own thoughts, ha ha ha. He tried one or two more jars, until an explosion of daylight told him he'd found the one with his eyes in. He watched his own bandaged hand reach down, growing gigantic, and scoop them up carefully. That seems to be the important bits, he thought. The rest can wait until later, maybe when I need to eat something and so forth. He turned around and realised that he was not alone. Dill and Gurn were watching him. To squeeze any further into the far corner of the room, they would have needed triangular backbones. Ah! Ho there, good people, said the king, aware that his voice was a little hollow. I know so much about you. I'd like to shake you by the hand. He looked down. Only they're rather full at the moment, he added. <coughs> said Gurn. "'You couldn't do a bit of reassembly, could you?' said the king, turning to Dill. "'Your stitches seem to be holding up nicely, by the way. Well done, that man!' Professional pride broke through the barrier of Dill's terror. "'You're alive,' he said. "'That was the general idea, wasn't it?' said the king. Dill nodded. Certainly it was. He'd always believed it to be true. He'd just never expected it ever actually to happen. But it had.' and the first words, well, nearly the first words that had been said, were in praise of his needlework. His chest swelled. No one else in the guild had ever been congratulated on their work by a recipient. There, he said to Gurn, whose shoulder blades were making a spirited attempt to dig their way through the wall, hear what has been said to your master. The king paused. It was beginning to dawn on him that things weren't quite right here. Of course, the netherworld was like this world, only better, and no doubt there were plenty of servants and so forth, but it seemed altogether far too much like this world. He was pretty sure that Dill and Gurn shouldn't be in it yet. Anyway, he'd always understood that the common people had their own netherworld, 
where they would be more at ease and could mingle with their own kind and wouldn't feel awkward and socially out of place. I say, he said, I may have missed a bit here. You're not, um, dead, are you? Dill didn't answer immediately. Some of the things he'd seen so far today made him a bit uncertain on the subject. In the end, though, he was forced to admit that he probably was alive. Then what's happening? said the king. We don't know, oh king, said Dill. Really, we don't. It's all come true, oh fount of waters. What has? Everything. Everything? The sun, O oh Lord, and the gods. Oh, the gods, they're everywhere, O oh master of heaven. We come in through the back his knees. Forgive us, O Lord of Justice, who has come back to deliver his mighty wisdom and that. I'm sorry about me and Glowenda. It was a moment of, um, what's the name? Mad passion. We couldn't control ourselves. Also, it was me. Dill waved him into a devout silence. Excuse me, he said to the king's mummy, but could we have a word away from the lad, man to, er, corpse, said the king, trying to make it easy for him. Certainly. They wandered over to the other side of the room. The fact is, O oh gracious king of... Dill began in a conspiratorial whisper. I think we can dispense with all that, said the king briskly. The dead don't stand on ceremony. King will be quite sufficient. The fact is, then, a uh, king, said Dill, experiencing a slight thrill at this equitable treatment. Young Gurn thinks it's all his fault. I've told him over and over again that the gods wouldn't go to all this trouble just because of one growing lad with urges. If you catch me drift. He paused and added carefully, They wouldn't, would they? Shouldn't think so for one minute, said the king briskly. We'd never see the back of them otherwise. That's what I told him, said Dill, immensely relieved. He's a good boy, sir. It's just that his mum is a bit funny about religion. We'd never see the back of them. Those were my very words. I'd be grateful if you could have a word with him, sir, you know. Set his mind at rest. Be happy to, said the king graciously. Dill sidled closer. The fact is, sir, these uh, gods, sir, they aren't right. We've been watching, sir. At least I have. I climbed on the roof. Gurn didn't. He hid under the bench. They're not right, sir. What's wrong with them? Well, they're here, sir. That's not right, is it? I mean, not to be really here. And they're just striding around and fighting amongst themselves and shouting at people. He looked both ways before continuing. Between you and me, sir, he said, they don't seem too bright. The king nodded. What are the priests doing about this? He said. I saw them throwing one another in the river, sir. The king nodded again. That sounds about right, he said. They've come to their senses at last. Do you know what I think, sir? said Dill earnestly. Everything we believe is coming true. And I heard something else, sir, this morning. If it was this morning, you understand, because the sun's all over the place, sir, and it's not the right sort of sun. But this morning, some of the soldiers tried to get out along the Iffy Broad, sir. And do you know what they found? What did they find? The road out, sir, leads in. Dill took a step backwards, the better to illustrate the seriousness of the revelations. They got up into the rocks, and then suddenly they were walking down the Tassort Road. 
It all sort of curves back on itself. We're shut in, sir. Shut in. With our gods. And I'm shut in my body, thought the king. Everything we believe is true. And what we believe isn't what we think we believe. I mean, we think we believe that the gods are wise and just and powerful, but what we really believe is that they are like our father after a long day. And we think we believe the netherworld is a sort of paradise, but we really believe it's right here, and you go to it in your body, and I'm in it, and I'm never going to get away, never, ever. What's my son got to say about all this? he said. Dill coughed. It was the ominous cough. The Spanish use an upside-down question mark to tell you what you're about to hear is a question. This was the kind of cough that tells you what you're about to hear is a dirge. "'Don't know how to tell you this, sir,' he said. "'Out with it, man. "'Sir, they say he's dead, sir. "'They say he killed himself and ran away.' "'Killed himself?' "'Sorry, sir. "'And ran away afterwards?' "'On a camel, they say.' "'We lead an active afterlife in our family, don't we?' observed the king dryly. "'Beg pardon, sir. I mean the two statements could be held to be mutually exclusive.' Dill's face became a well-meaning blank. "'That is to say they can't both be true,' supplied the king helpfully. <clears throat> said Dill. "'Yes, but I'm a special case,' said the king testily. "'In this kingdom we believe you live after death only if you've been mummy." He stopped. It was too horrible to think about. He thought about it, nevertheless, for some time. Then he said, "'We must do something about it.' Dill said, "'Your son, sir.' "'It's dead. I'd know about it,' snapped the king. "'He can look after himself. He's my son. It's my ancestors I'm worried about.' "'But they're dead,' Dill began. It has already been remarked that Dill had a very poor imagination— in a job like his, a poor imagination was essential. But his mind's eye opened on a panorama of pyramids stretching along the river, and his mind's ear swooped and curved through solid doors that no thief could penetrate. And it heard the scrabbling, and it heard the hammering, and it heard the muffled shouting. The king put a bandaged arm over his trembling shoulders. "'I know you're a good man with a needle, Dill,' he said. "'Tell me, how are you with a sledgehammer?' Coppolimer, the greatest storyteller in the world, sat back and beamed at the greatest minds in the world assembled at the dining table. Tepic had added another iota to his store of new knowledge. Symposium meant a knife-and-fork tea. Well, said Coppolimer, and launched into the story of the Tussortian Wars. You see, what happened was... He'd taken her back home and her father. This wasn't the old king, this was the one before, the one with the, uh, what's her name? He married some girl from over El Harib way. She had a squint, what was her name now? Began with a P, or an L, one of them letters anyway. Her father owned an island out on the bay there. Papilos, I think it was. No, no, tell a lie, it was Crinix. Anyway, the king, the, the other king... He raised an army, and they... Eleanor, that was her name. She had a squint, you know. But quite attractive, they say. When I say married, I trust I do not have to spell it out for you. I mean, well, it was a bit unofficial. Uh, anyway, there was this wooden horse, and after they'd got in... Did I tell you about this horse? It was a horse. Oh, I'm pretty sure it was a horse. Or maybe it was a chicken. 
forget my own name next. It was what's name's idea, the one with the limp. Yeah, the, the limp in his leg, I mean. Did I mention him? There'd been this fight. No, that was the other one, I think. Yes. Anyway, this wooden pig, damn clever idea. They made it out of thing. Uh, tip of my tongue, at wood. But that was, that was later, you know. The fight! Oh, nearly forgot the fight. Yes, damn good fight. Everyone banging on their shields and yelling. What's name's armour shone like shining armour. Fight and a half, that fight. Between Thingy, not, not the one with the limp, the other one. What's name? Had red hair, you know. You know, tall fellow, talked with a lisp. Hold on, just remembered. He was from some other island. No, not him, the other one with the limp. Uh... Didn't want to go. He said he was mad. Of course he was bloody mad, definitely. I mean, a wooden cow. <laughs> like what's the name said, the king. No, not that king, the other one. He saw the goat. He said, I fear the Ephebians, especially when they're mad enough to leave a bloody great wooden livestock on the doorstep. Talk about nerve. They must think we was born yesterday. Set fire to it. And, of course, Wasname had nipped in round the back and put everyone to the sword. <laughs> Talk about a laugh. Did I say she had a squint? They said she was pretty, but it takes all sorts. Yes, anyway, that's how it happened. Now, of course, Wasname, I think he was called Melicanus, had a limp. He wanted to go home. Well, you would. <laughs> They'd been there for years. He wasn't getting any younger. That's why he dreamt up the thing about the wooden was name. Yes, oh, oh, I tell a lie, I tell a lie. Lavalius was the one with the knee. Pretty good fight, that fight. Take it from me. He lapsed into self-satisfied silence. Pretty good fight, he mumbled, and smiling faintly dropped off to sleep. Tepic was aware that his own mouth was hanging open. He shut it. Along the table, several of the diners were wiping their eyes. Nick said Zeno. Sheer magic. Every word a tassel on the canopy of time. It's the way he remembers every tiny detail. Pin sharp, murmured Ibid. Tepic looked down the length of the table and then nudged Zeno beside him. Who is everyone, he said. Well, Ibid you already know, and, and Coppolima... Over there, that's Iasope, the greatest teller of fables in the world. And then there's Antiphon, the greatest writer of comic plays in the world. Where is Pythagonal? said Tepic. Zeno pointed to the far end. man was trying to determine the angle between two bread rolls. I'll introduce you to him afterwards, he said. Tepic looked round at the bald heads and long white beards, which seemed to be a badge of office. If you had a bald head and a long white beard, they seemed to indicate whatever lay between them must be bursting with wisdom. The only exception was Antiphon, who looked as though he was built of pork. They are great minds, he told himself. These are men who are trying to work out how the world fits together, not by magic, not by religion, but just by inserting their brains in whatever crack they can find and trying to lever it apart. Ibid rapped on the table for silence. The tyrant has called for war on to sort, he said. Now, let us consider the place of war in the ideal republic, he said. We would require... Uh, excuse me, could you just pass me the celery, said Iasope. Thank you. The ideal republic, as I was just saying, based on the fundamental laws that govern... 
and the salt. It's just by your elbow. The fundamental laws, that is, which govern all men. Now, it is without doubt true that war... <sighs> Could you stop that, please? It's celery, said Iasope, crunching cheerfully. You can't help it with celery. Zeno peered suspiciously at what was on his fork. Here, this is squid, he said. I didn't ask for squid. Who ordered squid? Without doubt, repeated Ibid, raising his voice. Without doubt, I put it to you. I think this is the lab couscous, said Antiphon. Was yours the squid? I asked for Merida and Dolmades. I ordered the lamb. Uh, just pass it along, will you? I don't remember anyone asking for all this garlic bread, said Zeno. Look, some of us are trying to float a philosophical concept here, said Ibid sarcastically. Don't let us interrupt you, will you? Someone threw a breadstick at him. Tepic looked at what was on his fork. Seafood was unknown in the kingdom, and what was on his fork had too many valves and suckers to be reassuring. He lifted a boil vine leaf with extreme care, and was sure he saw something scuttle behind an olive. Ah, something else to remember, then. The Ephebians made wine out of anything they could put in a bucket, and ate anything that couldn't climb out of one. He pushed the food around on his plate. Some of it pushed back. And philosophers didn't listen to one another, and they don't stick to the point. This probably is mocracy at work. A bread roll bounced past him. Oh, and they get overexcited. He noticed a skinny little man sitting opposite him chewing primly on some anonymous tentacle. Apart from Pythagonal, the geometrician, who was now gloomily calculating the radius of his plate, he was the only person not speaking his mind at the top of his voice. Sometimes he'd make little notes on a piece of parchment and slip it into his toga. Tepic leaned across. Further down the table, Iasope, encouraged by occasional olive stones and bread rolls, started a long fable about a fox, a turkey, a goose and a wolf, who had a wager to see who could stay longest underwater with heavy weights tied to their feet. "'Excuse me,' said Tepic, raising his voice above the din. "'Who are you?' The little man gave him a shy look. He had extremely large ears. In a certain light, he could have been mistaken for a very thin jug. "'I'm Endos,' he said. "'Why aren't you philosophizing? Endos sliced a strange mollusk. "'I'm not a philosopher, actually,' he said. "'Or a humorous playwright or something,' said Tepic. "'I'm afraid not. I'm a listener. "'Endos the listener, I'm known as.' "'That's fascinating,' said Tepic automatically. "'What does that involve?' "'Listening.' "'Just listening?' "'That's what they pay me for,' said Endos. "'Sometimes I nod or smile, or nod and smile at the same time. "'Encouragingly, you know, they like that.' "'Tepic felt he was called upon to comment at this point. "'Gosh,' he said, Endos gave him an encouraging nod and a smile that suggested that of all the things Endos could be doing in the world right at this minute, there was nothing so basically riveting as listening to Tepic. There was something about his ears. They appeared to be a vast, oral black hole begging to be filled up with words. Tepic felt an overpowering urge to tell him all about his life and hopes and dreams. "'I bet,' he said, "'that they pay you an awful lot of money.' Endos gave him a heartening smile. I tell his story lots of times. 
Endos nodded and smiled, although there was a faint trace of pain right behind his eyes. I expect, said Tepic, that your ears develop protective rough surfaces after a while. Endos nodded. Hmm. Do go on, he urged. Tepic glanced across at Pythagonal, who was moodily drawing right angles in his taramasalata. I'd love to stay and listen to you listening to me all day, he said, but there's a man over there I'd like to see. That's amazing, said Endos, making a short note and turning his attention to a conversation further along the table. A philosopher had averred that although truth was beauty, beauty was not necessarily truth, and a fight was breaking out. Endos listened carefully. The role of listeners has never been fully appreciated. However, it is well known that most people don't listen. They use the time when someone else is speaking to think of what they're going to say next. True listeners have always been revered among oral cultures and prized for their rarity value. Bards and poets are ten a cow, but a good listener is hard to find. Or at least, hard to find twice. Tepic wandered along the table to where Pythagonal was sitting in unrelieved misery and currently peering suspiciously under the crust of a pie. Tepic looked over his shoulder. "'I think I saw something moving in there,' he said. Mm, said the geometrician, taking a cork out of an unfora with his teeth. "'The mysterious young man in black from the Lost Kingdom.' "'I was hoping you could help me find it again,' said Tepic. "'I heard that you have some very unusual ideas in Ephebe.' Mm, "'It had to happen,' said Pythagonal. He pulled a pair of dividers from the folds of his robe and measured the pie thoughtfully. "'Is it a constant, do you think? It's a depressing concept.' "'Sorry,' said Tepic. "'The diameter divides into the circumference, you know. It ought to be three times. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But does it? No. Three point one four one and lots of other figures. There's no end to the buggers.' Do you know how pissed off that makes me? I expect it makes you extremely pissed off, said Tepic politely. Right. It tells me that the creator used the wrong kind of circles. It's not even a proper number. I mean, 3.5 you could respect. Or 3.3, that'd look right. He stared morosely at the pie. Excuse me, you said something about it had to happen. What? said Pythagonal from the depths of his gloom. Pie, he added. What had to happen? Tepic prompted. You can't mess with geometry, friend. Pyramids? <laughs> Dangerous things. Asking for trouble, I mean. Pythagonal reached unsteadily for his wine cup. How long did they think they could go on building bigger and bigger pyramids for? I mean, where did they think power comes from? I mean, <laughs> he hiccuped. You've been in that place, haven't you? Ever noticed how slow it all seems to be? Oh, yes, said Tepic flatly. That's because the time is sucked up, see? Pyramids. So they have to flare it off. Flare light, they call it. They think it looks pretty. It's their time they're burning off. All I know is the air feels as though it's been boiled in a sock said Tepic, and nothing actually changes even if it doesn't stay the same. Right, said Pythagonal. The reason being it's past time. They use up past time over and over again. The pyramids take up all the new time. 
And if you don't let the pyramids flare, the power will build up. Mm. He paused. I suppose, he went on, that it'd escape along a what's name, uh, a fracture in space. I was there before the kingdom um, went, said Tepic. I thought I saw the big pyramid move. Oh, there you are, then. It's probably moved the dimensions around by ninety degrees, said Pythagonal, with the assurance of the truly drunk. You mean, so length is height and height is width? Pythagonal shook an unsteady finger. No, 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 he said. So that length is height and height is breadth and breadth is width and width is... He burped. Time. It's another dimension, see? Four of the bastards. Time's one of them. Ninety thingies to the other three. Degrees is what I mean. Only, only it can't exist in... Place had to sort of pop outside for a bit, see? Otherwise you'd have people getting older by walking sideways. He looked sadly into the depths of his cup. And every birthday you'd age another mile, he added. Tepic looked at him aghast. That's time and space for you, Pythagonal went on. You can twist them all over the place if you're not careful. Three point one four one. What sort of a number do you call that? It sounds horrible, said Tepic. Damn right. Somewhere, Pythagonal was beginning to sway on his bench. Somewhere, someone built a universe with a decent, respectable value of... Of... He peered blearily at the table. Of... Pi... Not some damn number that never comes to an end. What kind of a number? I meant people getting older just by walking along. I don't know, though. You could have a stroll back to where you were eighteen, or wander up and see what you were going to look like when you were seventy. Travelling in width, though, that'd be the real trick. Pythagonal smiled vacantly and then very slowly keeled over into his dinner some of which moved out of the way. He was wrong. Nature abhors dimensional abnormalities and seals them neatly away so that they don't upset people. Nature, in fact, abhors a lot of things, including vacuums, ships called the Mary Celeste, and the chuck keys for electric drills. Tepic became aware that the philosophic din around him had subsided a bit. He stared along the line until he spotted Ibid. It won't work, said Ibid. The tyrant won't listen to us, nor will all the people. Anyway, he glanced at Antiphon, we're not all of one mind on the subject. Damned Tessalians needed teaching a lesson, said Antiphon sternly. Not room for two major powers on this continent. Damn bad sport. Anyway, just because we stole their queen, you full high spirits, love will have its way. Coppolima woke up. You've got it wrong, he said mildly. The Great War, that was because they stole our queen. What was her name now? Uh, face that launched a thousand camels began with A, or, or a T, or a... Did they? shouted Antiphon. The bastards! I'm reasonably certain, said Coppolima. Tepic sagged and turned to Endos the listener. He was still eating his dinner with the air of one who was determined to preserve his digestion. Endos... The listener laid his knife and fork carefully on either side of his plate. Yes. 
They're really all mad, aren't they? said Tepic wearily. That's extremely interesting, said Endos. Do go on. He reached shyly into his toga and brought forth a scrap of parchment which he pushed gently towards Tepic. What's this? My bill, said Endos. Five minutes attentive listening. Most of my gentlemen have monthly accounts, but I understand you'll be leaving in the morning? Tepic gave up. He wandered away from the table and into the cold the citadel of Ephebe. White marble statues of ancient Ephebians, doing heroic things with no clothes on, protruded through the greenery, and here and there there were statues of Ephebian gods. It was hard to tell the difference. Tepic knew that Dios had hard words to say about the Ephebians for having gods that looked just like people. If the gods looked just like everyone else, he used to say, how would people know how to treat them? Tepic had rather liked the idea. According to legend, the Ephebians' gods were just like humans, except that they used their godhood to get up to things humans didn't have the nerve to do. A favourite trick of Ephebian gods, he recalled, was turning into some animal in order to gain the favours of highly placed Ephebian women. And one of them had reputedly turned himself into a golden shower in pursuit of his intended. All this raised interesting questions about everyday nightlife in sophisticated Ephebe. He found Petracci sitting on the grass under a poplar tree, feeding the tortoise. He gave it a suspicious look in case it was a god trying it on. It did not look like a god. If it was a god, it was putting on an incredibly good act. She was feeding it a lettuce leaf. Dear little Petortus, she said, and then looked up. Oh, it's you, she said flatly. You didn't miss much, said Tepic, sagging onto the grass. They're a bunch of maniacs. When I left, they were smashing the plates. That's traditional at the end of an Ephebian meal, said Petracci. Tepic thought about this. Why not before? Probably dance to the sound of the Burzuki, Petracci added. I think it's a sort of dog. Tepic sat with his head in his hands. I must say, you speak Ephebian well, he said. But thank you. Just a trace of an accent, though. "'Languages is part of the patraining,' she said, "'and my grandmother told me that a patrace of foreign accent is more fascinating.' "'We learned the same thing,' said Tepic. "'An assassin should always be slightly foreign, no matter where he is. "'I'm good at that part,' he added bitterly. "'She began to massage his neck. "'I went down to the harbour, she said. "'There's those things like big rafts, you know, camels of the sea.' "'Ships,' said Tepic. And they go everywhere. We could go anywhere we want. The world is our thing with pearls in it, if we like. Tepic told her about Pythagonal's theory. She didn't seem surprised. Like an old pond where no new water comes in, she observed. So everyone goes round and round in the same old puddle. All the time you live has been lived already. It must be like other people's bath water. I'm going to go back. Her fingers stopped their skilled kneading of his muscles. We could go anywhere, she repeated. We've got patrades. We could sell that camel. You could show me that Ankh-Morpork place. It sounds interesting. Tepic wondered what effect Ankh-Morpork would have on the girl. Then he wondered what effect she would have on the city. She was definitely... flowering. Back in the Old Kingdom, she'd never apparently had any original thoughts beyond the choice of the next grape to peel, but since she was outside, she seemed to have changed. Her jaw hadn't changed, it was still quite small, and he had to admit very pretty, but somehow it was more noticeable. She used to look at the ground when she spoke to him. 
She still didn't always look at him when she spoke to him, but now it was because she was thinking about something else. He found he kept wanting to say, politely, without stressing it in any way, just as a very gentle reminder that he was king. But he had a feeling that she'd say she hadn't heard, and would he please repeat it? And if she looked at him, he'd never be able to say it twice. "'You could go,' he said. "'You'd get on well. "'I could give you a few names and addresses. "'And what would you do?' "'I dread to think what's going on back home,' said Tepic. "'I ought to do something.' "'You can't. Why, Petrai? "'Even if you didn't want to be an assassin, "'there's lots of things you could do. "'And you said the man said it's not a place "'people could get into any more. "'I hate pyramids. "'Surely there's people there you care about.' Petrachi shrugged. If they're dead, there's nothing I can do about it, she said, and if they're alive, there's nothing I can do about it, so I shan't. Tepic stared at her in a species of horrified admiration. It was a beautiful summary of things as they were. He just couldn't bring himself to think that way. His body had been away for seven years, but his blood had been in the kingdom for a thousand times longer. Certainly he'd wanted to leave it behind, but that was the whole point. It would have been there. Even if he'd avoided it for the rest of his life, it would still have been a sort of anchor. "'I feel so wretched about it,' he repeated. "'I'm sorry, that's all there is to it. Even to go back for five minutes just to say, "'Well, that I'm not coming back, that'd be enough. "'It's probably all my fault. "'But there isn't a way back. "'You'll just hang around sadly like those deposed kings you told me about.' you know, with threadbare cloaks and always begging for their food in a high-class way. There's nothing more useless than a king without a kingdom, you said. Just think about it. They wandered through the sunset streets of the city and towards the harbour. All streets in the city led towards the harbour. Someone was just putting a torch to the lighthouse, which was one of the more than seven wonders of the world and had been built to a design by Pythagonal using the golden rule and the five aesthetic principles. Unfortunately, it had then been built in the wrong place, because putting it in the right place would have spoiled the look of the harbour, but it was generally agreed by mariners to be a very beautiful lighthouse, and something to look at while they were waiting to be towed off the rocks. The harbour below it was thronged with ships. Tepic and Petrachi picked their way past crates and bundles until they reached the long, curved guard wall, harbour calm on one side, choppy with waves on the other. Above them, the lighthouse flared and sparked. Those boats would be going to places he'd only ever heard of, he knew. The Ephebians were great traders. He could go back to Ankh and get his diploma, and then the world would indeed be the mollusk of his choice, and he had any amount of knives to open it with. And there'd be none of this marrying relatives business. The months into Jelly Baby already seemed like a dream one of those circular dreams that you never quite seem able to shake off, and which make insomnia an attractive prospect. Whereas here was a future, unrolling in front of him like a carpet. What a chap needed at a time like this was a sign, some sort of book of instructions. The trouble with life was that you didn't get a chance to practice before doing it for real. You only... God grief! It's Tepic, isn't it? The voice was addressing him from ankle height. A head appeared over the stone of the jetty, quickly followed by its body. An extremely richly dressed body, one on which no expense had been spared in the way of gems, furs, silks and laces, provided that all of them, every single one, was black. It was Chidder.
What's it doing now? said Pataclus. His son poked his head cautiously over the ruins of a pillar and watched Hat, the vulture-headed god. It's, uh, it's sniffing around, he said. I think it likes the statue. Honestly, Dad, why did you have to go and, go and buy a thing like that? It was in a job lot, said Pataclusp. Anyway, I thought it would be a popular line. With who? Well, he likes it. Pataclusp 2B risked another squint at the angular monstrosity that was still hopping around the ruins. Tell him he can have it if he goes away, he suggested. Tell him he can have it at cost. Pataclusp winced. At a discount, he said. A special cut rate for our supernatural customers. He stared up at the sky. From their hiding place in the ruins of the construction camp, with the Great Pyramid still humming like a powerhouse behind them, they'd had an excellent view of the arrival of the gods. At first he'd viewed them with a certain amount of equanimity. Gods would be good customers. They always wanted temples and statues. He could deal directly, cut out the middleman. And then it had occurred to him that a god... When he was unhappy about the product, as it might be, maybe the plasterwork wasn't exactly as per spec, or perhaps a corner of the temple was a bit low on account of unexpected quicksand, a god didn't just come around demanding in a loud voice to see the manager. No, a god knew exactly where you were and got to the point. Also, gods were notoriously bad payers. So were humans, of course, but they didn't actually expect you to die before they settled the account. His gaze turned to his other son, a painted silhouette against the statue, his mouth a frozen O of astonishment, and Pataclusp reached a decision. "'I've just about had it with pyramids,' he said. "'Remind me, lad, if we ever get out of here, no more pyramids. We've got set in our ways. Time to branch out, I reckon.' "'That's, that's what I've been telling you for ages, Dad,' said Tooby. "'I've told you a couple of decent aqueducts will make a tremendous—' "'Yes, yes, I remember,' said Pataclusp. "'Yes, aqueducts, all those arches and things. "'Fine, only I can't remember where you said you have to put the coffin in.' "'Dad!' "'Don't mind me, lad. I think I'm going mad. "'I couldn't have seen a mummy and two men over there, carrying sledgehammers.' "'It was indeed Chidder, and Chidder had a boat.' Tepic knew that further along the coast, the Serif of Al-Kali lived in the fabulous palace of the Roxy, which was said to have been built in one night by a genie and was famed in myth and legend for its splendour. It was therefore colloquially known as the Dijin Palace. The unnamed was the Roxy afloat, but more so. Its designer had a gilt complex and had tried every trick with gold paint, curly pillars and expensive drapes to make it look less like a ship and more like a boudoir that had collided with a highly suspicious type of theatre. In fact, you needed an assassin's eye for hidden detail to notice how innocently the gaudiness concealed the sleekness of the hull and the fact that even when you added the cabin space and the holds together that there still seemed to be a lot of capacity unaccounted for. The water around what Petracci called the pointed end was strangely rippled, but it would be totally ridiculous to suspect such an obvious merchantman of having a concealed ramming spike underwater, or that a mere five minutes' work with an axe would turn this wallowing Alcazar into something that could run away from nearly everything else afloat and make the few that could catch up seriously regret it. Very impressive, said Tepic. It's all show, really, said Chidder. Yes, I can see that. I mean, we're poor traders. 
Tepic nodded. The usual phrase is poor but honest traders, he said. Chidder smiled a merchant smile. At the moment, how the hell are you anyway? Last we heard you were going off to be king of some place no one's ever heard of. And who is this lovely young lady? Her name, Tepic began. Petracci, said Petracci. She's a handmaid, Tepic began. She must surely be a royal princess, said Chidder smoothly, and it would give me the greatest pleasure if she, indeed, if both of you, would dine with me tonight. Humble sailor's fare, I'm afraid, but we muddle along. We muddle along. Not Ephebian, is it? said Tepic. Ships, biscuits, salt beef, that sort of thing, said Chidder, without taking his eyes off Petracci. They hadn't left her since she came on board. Then he laughed. It was the old familiar Chidder laugh, not exactly without humour, but clearly well under the control of its owner's higher brain centres. "'And what an astonishing coincidence,' he said. "'And us due to sail at dawn, too. "'Can I offer you a change of clothing? "'You both look somewhat, uh, travel-stained. "'Rough sailor clothing, I expect,' said Tepic, "'as befits a humble merchant. "'Correct me if I'm wrong.' "'In fact, Tepic was shown to a small cabin "'as exquisitely and carefully furnished as a jewelled egg,' where there was laid upon the bed as fine an assortment of clothing as could be found anywhere on the Circle Sea. True, it all appeared second-hand, but carefully laundered, and expertly stitched, so that the sword cuts hardly showed at all. He gazed thoughtfully at the hooks on the wall, and the faint patching on the wood, which hinted that various things had once been hung up there and hastily removed. He stepped out into the narrow corridor and met Petracci. She'd chosen a red court dress, such as had been the fashion in Ankh Morpork ten years previously, with puffed sleeves and vast concealed underpinnings and ruffs the size of millstones. Tepic learned something new, which was that attractive women dressed in a few strips of gauze and a few yards of silk can actually look far more desirable when fully clad from neck to ankle. She gave an experimental twirl. "'There are any amounts of things like this in there,' she said. "'Is this how women dress in Ankh Morpork? "'It's like wearing a house. "'It doesn't half make you sweaty.' "'Look, about Chidder,' said Tepic urgently. "'I mean, he's a good fellow and everything, but... "'He's very kind, isn't he?' she agreed. "'Well, yes, he is,' Tepic admitted hopelessly. "'He's an old friend. "'That's nice.' "'One of the crew materialised at the end of the corridor "'and bowed to them in the state cabin.' his air of old retainership marred only by the criss-cross pattern of scars on his head and some tattoos that made the pictures in the shuttered palace look like illustrations in a DIY shelving manual. The things he could make them do by flexing his biceps could keep entire dockside taverns fascinated for hours, and he was not aware that the worst moment of his entire life was only a few minutes away. "'This is all very pleasant,' said Chidder, pouring some wine. He nodded at the tattooed man— "'You may serve the soup, Alphonse,' he added. "'Look, Chiddy, you're not a pirate, are you?' said Tepic, desperately. "'Is that what's been worrying you?' Chidder grinned his lazy grin. It wasn't everything that Tepic had been worrying about, but it had been jockeying for top position. He nodded. "'No, we're not. We just prefer to uh, avoid paperwork wherever possible, you know. We don't like people to have all the worry of having to know everything we do.' Only there's all the clothes. Ah, we get attacked by pirates a fair amount. That's why father had the unnamed built. 
It always surprises them. And the whole thing is morally sound. We get their ship, their booty, and any prisoners they may have get rescued and given a ride home at competitive rates. What do you do with the pirates? Chitter glanced at Alphonse. That depends on future employment prospects, he said. Father always said that a man down on his luck should be offered a helping hand. On terms, that is. How's the king business? Tepic told him. Chidder listened intently, swilling the wine around in his glass. So that's it, he said at last. We heard there was going to be a war. That's why we're sailing tonight. I don't blame you, said Tepic. No, I mean to get the trade organised, with both sides, naturally, because we're strictly impartial. The weapons produced on this continent are really quite shocking, downright dangerous. You should come with us too. You're a very valuable person. Never felt more valueless than right now, said Tepic despondently. Chidder looked at him in amazement. But you're a king, he said. Well, yes, but... Of a country which technically still exists, but isn't actually reachable by mortal man? Sadly so. And you can pass laws about, well, currency and taxation, yes? I suppose so, but... And you don't... Yep, our accountants can probably think up fifty different ways to... to well, my hands go damp just to think about it. Father will probably ask to move our head office there for a start. Chidder, I explained. You know it. No one can get in, said Tepic. Well, that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter? No, because we'll just make Ark our main branch office and pay our taxes in wherever the place is. All we need is an official address in, I don't know, the Avenue of the Pyramids or something. Take my tip and don't give in on anything until Father gives you a seat on the board. Hmm. You're royal, anyway. That's always impressive. Chidder chattered on. Tepic felt his clothes growing hotter. So this was it. You lost your kingdom, and then it was worth more because it was a tax haven. And you took a seat on the board, whatever that was, and that made it all right. Petracci diffused the situation by grabbing Alphonse's arm as he was serving the pheasant. The Congress of the Friendly Dog and the Two Small Biscuits, she exclaimed, examining the intricate tattoo. You hardly ever see that these days. Isn't it well done? You can even make out the yoghurt. Alphonse froze and then blushed. Watching the glow spread across the great scarred head was like watching sunrise over a mountain range. What's the one on your other arm? Alphonse, who looked as though his past jobs had included being a battering ram, murmured something and very shyly showed her his forearm. He's not really suitable for ladies, he whispered. Petracci brushed aside the wiry hair like a keen explorer, while Chidder stared at her with his mouth hanging open. Oh, I know that one she said dismissively. That's out of a hundred and thirty days of Pseudopolis. It's physically impossible. She let go of the arm and turned back to her meal. After a moment, she looked up at Tepic and Chidder. Don't mind me, she said brightly. Do go on. Alphonse, uh, please go and put a proper shirt on, said Chidder hoarsely. Alphonse backed away, staring at his arm. Uh, what was I uh, uh, saying, said Chidder. Sorry, lost the thread. Uh, have some more wine, Tep? Petracci didn't just derail the train of thought. She ripped up the rails, burned the stations and melted the bridges for scrap. And so the dinner trailed off into beef pie, fresh peaches, crystallised sea urchins and desultory small talk about the good old days at the Guild. They'd been three months ago. It seemed like a lifetime. Three months in the Old Kingdom was a lifetime.
After some time, Petrucci yawned and went to her cabin, leaving the two of them alone with a fresh bottle of wine. Chidda watched her go in awed silence. "'Are there many like her back at your place?' he said. "'I don't know,' Tepic admitted. "'There could be. Usually they lie around the place peeling grapes or waving fans.' "'She's amazing. She'll take them by storm and arc, you know, with a figure like that and a mind like—' uh, he hesitated. "'Is she, I mean, are you two, uh, no,' said Tepic. "'She's very attractive.' "'Yes,' said Tepic, "'sort of cross between a temple dancer and a bandsaw. "'They took their glasses and went up on deck, "'where a few lights from the city paled against the brilliance of the stars. "'The water was flat, calm, almost oily. "'Tepic's head was beginning to spin slowly. "'The desert, the sun, two gloss coats of Ephebian retsina on his stomach lining, "'and a bottle of wine were getting together to beat up his synapses.' "'I must say,' he managed, leaning on the rail, "'you're doing all right for yourself.' Oh, "'It's okay,' said Chidder. "'Commerce is quite interesting. "'Building up markets, you know, "'the cut and thrust of competition in the privateering sector. "'You ought to come in with us, boy. "'It's where the future lies, my father says. "'Not with wizards and kings, "'but with enterprising people who can afford to hire them. <laughs> "'No offence intended, you understand.' "'We're all that's left.' said Tepic to his wine-glass, out of the whole kingdom. Me, her, and a camel that smells like an old carpet. An ancient kingdom. Lost. Good job it wasn't a new one, said Chidder. At least people got some wear out of it. You don't know what it's like, said Tepic. It's like a whole great pyramid, but upside down, you understand. All that history, all those ancestors, all the people, all funneling down to me, right at the bottom. He slumped onto a coil of rope as Chidder passed the bottle back and said, "'Makes you think, doesn't it? "'There's all these lost cities and kingdoms around, "'like E in the Great Neff. "'Whole country's just gone. "'Just out there somewhere. "'Maybe people started mucking about with geometry. "'What do you say?' Tepic snored. After some moments, Chidder swayed forward, it went plunk, and for a few seconds a stream of bubbles disturbed the flat calm, and staggered off to bed. Tepic dreamed. And in his dream, he was standing on a high place, but unsteadily, because he was balancing on the shoulders of his father and mother, and below him he could make out his grandparents, and below them his ancestors stretching away and out in a vast, all right, a vast pyramid of humanity, whose base was lost in the clouds. He could hear the murmur of shouted orders and instructions floating up to him. "'If you do nothing, we shall never have been!' "'This is just a dream,' he said, and stepped out of it into a palace, where a small dark man in a loincloth was sitting on a stone bench eating figs. "'Of course it's a dream,' he said. "'The world is the dream of the Creator. It's all dreams, different kinds of dreams. They're supposed to tell you things, like don't eat lobster last thing at night, stuff like that. Have you had the one about the seven cows?' "'Yes,' said Tepic, looking around. He dreamed quite good architecture. One of them was playing a trombone. "'It was smoking a cigar in my day. Well-known ancestral dream, that dream.' "'What does it mean?' the little man picked a seed from between his teeth. "'Search me,' he said. "'I'd give my right arm to find out. "'I don't think we've met, by the way. "'I'm Kuft. 
I founded this kingdom. You dream a good fig. I'm dreaming you too. Damn right. I had a vocabulary of 800 words. Do you think I'd really be talking like this? If you're expecting a bit of helpful ancestral advice, forget it. This is a dream. I can't tell you anything you don't know yourself. You're the founder? That's me. I thought you'd be different, said Tepic. How do you mean? Well, on the statue... Kuft waved a hand impatiently. That's just public relations, he said. I mean, look at me. Do I look patriarchal? Tepic gave him a critical appraisal. Not in that loincloth, he admitted. It's a bit, well, ragged. It's got years of wear left in it, said Kuft. Still, I expect it's all you could grab when you were fleeing from persecution, said Tepic, anxious to show an understanding nature. Kuft took another fig and gave him a lopsided look. How's that again? You were being persecuted, said Tepic. That's why you fled into the desert. Oh, yes, you're right, damn right. I was being persecuted for my beliefs. That's terrible, said Tepic. Kuft spat. Damn right. I believed people wouldn't notice I'd sold them camels with plaster teeth until I was well out of town. It took a little while for this to sink in, but it managed it, with all the aplomb of a concrete block in a quicksand. You're a criminal, said Tepic. Well, criminal's a dirty word, know what I mean, said the little ancestor. I'd prefer entrepreneur. I was way ahead of my time, that's my trouble. And you were running away, said Tepic weakly. It wouldn't, said Kuft, have been a good idea to hang about. And Kuft the camel herder became lost in the desert, and there opened before him, as a gift from the gods, a valley flowing with milk and honey quoted Tepic in a hollow voice. He added, I used to think it must have been awfully sticky. There I was, dying of thirst. All the camels came, kicking up a din, yelling for water. Next minute, whoosh! A bloody great river valley, reed beds, hippos, the whole thing, out of nowhere. I nearly got knocked down in the stampede. No, said Tepic, it wasn't like that. The gods of the valley took pity on you and showed you the way in, didn't they? He shut up, surprised at the tones of pleading in his own voice. Kuft sneered. Oh, yes, and I just happened to stumble across a hundred miles of river in the middle of the desert that everyone else had missed. <laughs> Easy thing to miss, a hundred miles of river valley in the middle of a desert, isn't it? Not that I was going to look a gift camel in the mouth, you understand. I went and brought my family and the rest of the lads in soon enough. <laughs> Never looked back. One minute it wasn't there, the next minute it was, said Tepic. Right enough. Hard to believe, isn't it? No, said Tepic. No, not really. Kuft poked him with a wrinkled finger. I always reckoned it was... I always thought they sort of called it into place, like it was sort of potentially there but not quite, and it needed just that little bit of effort to make it real. Funny things, camels. I know. Odder than gods. Something the matter? Sorry, said Tepic. It's just that this is all a bit of a shock. I mean, I thought we were really royal. I mean, we're more royal than anyone. 
Kuft picked a fig seed from between two blackened stumps, which, because they were in his mouth, probably had to be called his teeth. Then he spat. That's up to you, he said, and vanished. Tepic walked through the necropolis, the pyramids a saw-edged skyline against the night. The sky was the arched body of a woman, and the gods stood around the horizon. They didn't look like the gods that had been painted on the walls for thousands of years. They looked worse. They looked older than time. After all, the gods hardly ever meddled in the affairs of men, but other things were proverbial for it. What can I do? I'm only human, he said aloud. Someone said, Not all of you. Tepic awoke to the screaming of seagulls. Alphonse, who was wearing a long-sleeved shirt and the expression of one who never means to take it off again ever, was helping several other men unfurl one of unnamed sails. He looked down at Tepic in his bed of rope and gave him a nod. They were moving. Tepic sat up and saw the dockside of Ephebe slipping silently away in the grey morning light. He stood up unsteadily, groaned, clutched at his head, took a run and dived over the rail. Heme Croner, owner of the Camels R Us livery stable, walked slowly around you bastard humming. He examined the camel's knees. He gave one of its feet an experimental kick. In a swift movement that took you bastard completely by surprise, he jerked open the beast's mouth and examined his great yellow teeth and then jumped away. He took a plank of wood from a heap in the corner, dipped a brush in a pot of black paint, and after a moment's thought carefully wrote, One owner. After some further consideration, he added, Low mileage. He was just brushing in good runner when Tepic staggered in and leaned panting against the doorframe. Pools of water formed around his feet. I've come for my camel, he said. Croner sighed. Last night you said you'd be back in an hour, he said. I'm going to have to charge you for the whole day's livery, right? Plus, I gave him a rub down and did his feet, the full service. That'll be five, sir. Okay, Amir? Ah, Tepic patted his pocket. Look, he said, I left home in a bit of a hurry, you see. I don't seem to have any cash on me. Fair enough, Amir. Croner turned back to his board. How do you spell year's warranty? I will definitely have the money sent to you, said Tepic. Croner gave him the withering smile of one who has seen it all. Asses with bodywork rehaired, elephants with plaster tusks, camels with false humps glued on, and knows the festering depths of the human soul when it gets down to business. Pull the other one, Raja, he said. It has got bells on. Tebic fumbled in his tunic. I could give you this valuable knife, he said. Croner gave it a passing glance and sniffed. Sorry, Emir, no can do. No pay, no camel. I could give it to you point first, said Tepic, desperately, knowing that the mere threat would get him expelled from the guild. He was also aware that as a threat it wasn't very good. Threats weren't on the syllabus at the guild school. Whereas Croner had, sitting on straw blades of bale at the stables, a couple of large men who were just beginning to take an interest in the proceedings. They looked like Alphonse's older brothers. Every vehicle depot of any description anywhere in the multiverse has them. They're never exactly grooms or mechanics or customers or staff. Their function is always unclear. They chew straws or smoke cigarettes in a surreptitious fashion. If there are such things as newspapers around, they read them. Or at least look at the pictures. 
They started to watch Tepic closely. One of them picked up a couple of bricks and began to toss them up and down. "'You're a young lad, I could see that,' said Croner kindly. "'You're just starting out in life, Emir. "'You don't want trouble,' he stepped forward. "'You bastard's huge, shaggy head turned to look at him. "'In the depths of his brain, columns of little numbers whirred upwards again. "'Look, I I'm sorry, but I have to have my camel back,' said Tepic. "'It's life and death.' Croner waved. You bastard kicked him. You bastard had very concise ideas about people putting their hands in his mouth. Besides, he'd seen the bricks, and every camel knew what two bricks added up to. It was a good kick, toes well spread, powerful and deceptively slow. It picked Croner up and delivered him neatly into a steaming heap of Orgean stable sweepings. Tepic ran, kicked away from the wall, grabbed you bastard's dusty coat and landed heavily on his neck. I'm very sorry, he said, to such of Croner as was visible. I really will have some money sent to you. You bastard, at this point, was waltzing round and round in a circle. Croner's companions stayed well back as feet-like plates whirred through the air. Tepic leaned forward and hissed into one madly waving ear. We're going home, he said. End of CD 7